You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, this is uh, the first chapter of the peripheral, and it's called The Haptics. They didn't think Flynn's brother had PTSD, but that sometimes the haptics glitched him. They said it was like phantom limb, ghosts of the tattoos he'd worn in the war, put there to tell him when to run, when to be still, when to do the badass dance which direction, and what range. So they allowed him some disability for that, and he lived in the trailer down by the creek. An alcoholic uncle had lived there when they were little, veteran of some other war, their father's older brother. She and Burton and Leon used it for a fort the summer she was ten, Leon tried to take girls there later on, but it smelled too bad. When Burton got his discharge, it was empty, except for the biggest wasp nest any of them had ever seen. Most valuable thing on their property, Leon said, an Airstream, 1977. He showed her ones on eBay that looked like blunt rifle slugs, went for crazy money in any condition at all. The uncle had gooped this one over with white expansion foam, gone gray and dirty now to stop it leaking and for insulation. Leon said that had saved it from pickers. She thought it looked like a big old grub, but with tunnels back through it to the windows. Coming down the path, she saw stray crumbs of that foam packed down hard in the dark earth. He had the trailer's lights turned up and closer through a window. She partly saw him stand, turn, and on his spine and side the marks where they took the haptics off, like the skin was dusted with something dead fish silver. They said they could get that off, too, but he didn't want to keep going back. Hey, Burton, she called. Easy ice, he answered, her gamer tag, one hand bumping the door open and the other tugging a new white T-shirt down over that chest the core gave him, covering the silvered patch above his navel, size and shape of a playing card. Inside, the trailer was the color of Vaseline, LEDs buried in it, bedded in hefty mart amber. She had helped him sweep it out before he moved in. He hadn't bothered to bring the shop vac down from the garage, just bombed the inside a good inch thick with this Chinese polymer that dried glassy and flexible. You could see stubs of burnt matches down inside that, or the cork-patterned paper on the squashed filter of a legally sold cigarette, older than she was. She knew where to find a rusty jeweler's screwdriver and somewhere else a, a 2009 quarter. Now he just got his stuff out before he hosed the inside every week or two, like washing out Tupperware. Leon said the polymer was curatorial, but you could peel it all out before you put your American classic up on eBay. Let it take the dirt with it. Burton took her hand, squeezed, pulled her up and in. You going to Davisville, she asked. Leon's picking me up, he said. Luke 4-5's protesting there. Shailene told me, she said. He shrugged, moving a lot of muscle, but not by much. That was you, Burton, she said, last month on the news, that funeral in Carolina. He didn't quite smile. You might have killed that boy, she said. He shook his head just a fraction, eyes narrowed. Scares me, Burton, you do that shit. 
You still walking point, he asked her, for that lawyer in Tulsa. He isn't playing now, she said. Busy lawyering, I guess. You're the best he had, Burton said. You showed him that. It's just a game, she said, but telling herself more than him. He might as well been getting himself a marine, Burton said. She thought she saw that thing the haptics did then, that shiver, then it was gone. I need you to sub for me, he said, like nothing had happened. A five-hour shift. You'd fly a quadcopter. She looked past him to his display, some Danish supermodel's legs retracting into some brand of car nobody she knew would ever drive or likely even see on the road. You're on disability, she said. You aren't supposed to work. He looked at her. Where's the job, she asked. No idea, he said. Outsourced, she asked. The VA will catch you. It's a game, he said. Beta of some game. Shooter, she asked. Nothing to shoot, he said. Work a perimeter around three floors of this tower, 55th to 57th. You see what turns up. What does, she asked. Paparazzi, he said. He showed her the length of his index finger. Little things. You get in their way. You just edge them back. That's all you do. When, she asked. Tonight, get you set up before Leon comes. I'm supposed to help Shailene, she said later. I'll give you two fives, he said. He took his wallet from his jeans, edged out a pair of new bills, the little windows unscratched, the holograms bright. Folded, they went into the right front pocket of her cutoffs. Turn the lights down, she said. Hurts my eyes. He did, swinging his hand through the display, but then the place looked like a 17-year-old boy's bedroom, she reached over, flicked it up a little. She sat in his chair. It was Chinese reconfiguring to her height and weight as, as he pulled himself up an old metal stool, almost no paint left on that, waving a screen into view. It said, Milagros Cold Iron, S.A. What's that, she asked. It's who we're working for, he said. How did they pay you, she asked. Hefty, pal, he said. You'll get caught for sure, she told him. Goes to an account of Leon's, he said. Leon's army service had been about the same time as Burton's in the Marines, but Leon wasn't due any disability. It wasn't, their mother said, like he could claim to have caught the dumb fuck there. Not that Flynn had ever thought Leon was anything but sly under it all and lazy. Need my login and the password, he told her. Hat trick. That was how they both pronounced his tag, hapt wreck, to keep it private. He took an envelope from his back pocket, unfolded and opened it. The paper looked thick, creamy. That from Fab, she asked him. He drew out a long slip of the same paper printed with what looked to be a full paragraph of characters and symbols. You scan it, he said, or type it outside that window. We're out of job. She picked up the envelope from where it lay on what she guessed had been a fold-down dining table. It was one of Shailene's top-shelf stationary items, kept literally on a top shelf. When letter orders came in from big companies or lawyers, you went up there. She ran her thumb along the logo in the upper left corner. Metaline, she asked him. It's a security firm, he said. You said it's a game, she said. That's $10,000 in your pocket, he said. How long you been doing this, Burton? Two weeks now, he said. Sunday's off. How much you get? 25000 per, he said. 
Make it 20, then, she said. Short notice that I'm stiffing Shailene. He gave her another two fives. William Gibson is the author of novels including Neuromancer, Count Zero, Burning Chrome, Mona Lisa Overdrive, Virtual Light, Idoru, All Tomorrow's Parties, Pattern Recognition, Spook Country, and Zero History. His new novel is The Peripheral. Thank you for speaking with me, William. I'm glad to be back. As I read this novel, one the first things I noticed was as you create this near future that we encounter at the beginning of the book, I was thinking that we now live in a world where it's possible to grow up, foresee a future, then arrive in that future. As you're heading towards that future, you're thinking about it with anticipation, ambition, you know, anxiety, annoyance. And then by the time you finally get there, it's A, it's disappointing. B, it's boring. <laughs> so I'd like you to talk about creating this future that where the people who have arrived in it, they're already used to it. Mm, well, one of the... the something Something very common in science fiction when... I was first a reader of, of science fiction. It it seemed to me was a, a, a tendency, an unrealistic tendency, for the characters in in the imaginary futures in the story to be Im, impressed with their own uh, advanced le- levels of technology. Except the level of technology in the story wasn't really advanced for them. It was advanced for us. It just struck me as a a basic failing uh, naturalistically. So we would not, in in the sense that we don't feel any sense of awe when when we, we call long distance and speak to someone thousands of miles away. We just... We just do it, but in in the kind of a lot of the science fiction I grew up on, the characters were like, "Well, I'm in New York now. I'm calling. I'm through the miracle of telephony, <laughs> long distance telephony. I will call London. There is no lag on the line. I speak to my friend as though she were in the same room, and." It used it bugged me even even as a child. I don't think I understood why it bugged me, but when in my mid twenties, when I began to try to write fiction, and I was trying to write science fiction particularly, it, it was something that I made a note to try and try not to do, and it, it requires extra extra work to to avoid that. It, and it just as it requires extra work to layer the exposition of the imaginary bits in into the story without resorting to what writers call sometimes call the well bob you know that paragraph that that tells the reader what what to think as a reader myself, I don't want to be told what to make of it. I want to feel lost, and I want to feel culture shock, and I want to feel as though I myself have put it together before the author, if she ever does, finally makes it clear what's what's going on. And the, the peripheral was written with from very strict rules of expositional golf. And to the extent that I suspect it's it will always lose a certain number of readers who will just be annoyed at, at the, the uh, homework it sets them initially. But, you know, you can't... You really can't write for both sides of that particular aisle. (laughs) You know, but that is, I think, one of the things that makes science fiction engaging and your science fiction particularly engaging because as readers, the joy of reading is not that 
the work is done for us. It's the work that we get to do putting it all together. And that's one of the things, too, that science fiction, I think, especially the way you write it, shares a lot with mystery is the first third or half of this novel is to us a mystery of what the heck is going on here in these worlds? How did we get to these places mm-hmm. and how how do they connect? <clears throat> so you talked about the golf and the layering practices. I'd like you to go a little bit more into that. When you're doing this, is this all just off the cuff or are there some kind of uh, timelines and spreadsheets out there in, in, on your wall? Well, initially there are no no timelines and spreadsheets and it it for me the narrative narrative emerges through a, a weird process of overwriting writing over what what's re endless is sort of endless drifting revision right it, you know it is the state that i I start with, and I wind up. If if you put a key logger on on the machine I write on, and then replayed and speed it up, what what I do? I think you'd see something. You 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 the animated result would be something like the medieval idea of a palimpsest, where they they wrote over and over and over again on the same <clears throat> the same piece of paper until finally it's just this illegible blur but they were actually doing it as a, it's a kind of a way of empowering a magical spell was one of its uses it also had religious uses in the church the creation of Palimpsest. If you wrote the entire scripture on one piece of paper, you could fold it into a locket. God could read it. It didn't matter that you couldn't. You'd still have the, you'd have the scripture. And in some wacky way that I don't even, I, that I avoid examining. That's what I do at the, at the beginning, at the beginning of a novel. And when narrative starts starts to emerge i i keep rewriting it while i'm making it longer until it finally there's a point at which there's enough of it that i begin to have a sense some vague sense of what the narrative is and then i start removing the bits that don't don't feel to me as though they fit what the emergent narrative is. It's like that old joke about the fiddle maker. When they ask him how he did it, he said, I, I start with this block of wood and I take off everything that's not a fiddle. And, and that's my my sense of literary composition is very much that, except it, it simultaneously involves the creation of the block of wood. So it's seemingly it all, and at the very beginning it feels that feels literally impossible and paradoxical and and a fool's errand, and I'm only only able to go go forward with it because I know from experience that however ridiculous it, it is, it works for me or it has at least worked in. The past. I'm always in doubt, as indeed I was with this book, with whether or not it's going to work yet again, or whether I've I've somehow set the parameters wrong at the beginning, and I'm I'm creating uh, a sort of literary catastrophe. Well, that I think that takes us to your prose style, which seems so wonderfully kind of clipped. It seems like there. When we read this, it, it feels like you've gone through it with with shears and and kind of given it a nice clean haircut. So it's all that's there is all we need to know in that moment of reading. Well, I was trying to very consciously trying to channel my 
my lifelong reading of Elmore Leonard, I, I actually. I didn't go back and reread any any Elmore, but El, Elmore Leonard had, had a, a, an unrivaled sense of white space on, on the on the page, and he would go so far as to remove punctuation that I myself would have would have left in. He believed in in literally removing every black mark on every page of of his manuscript that wasn't absolutely absolutely necessary. And I didn't go that far but and there because there are two narrative threads that have very different voices and are actually written in, in very different very different styles. But in in the first narrative thread and the chapters alter the threads alternate through the one two one two through the chapters. In the first thread it's it's uh it's colloquial, it's it's American, it's rural to the extent that you can say there still is a, a, a rural colloquy and it it's uh trying to as well as I could to play by Elmore's rules. They're also they're they're less they're less Latinate words. They're fewer adjectives and, and adverbs. It's really been stripped down. And I, one of the things that was like serious grunt work in in the book is that those voices, when I was writing, would bleed through, particularly if I was working working very quickly and I'm sure that if I you know when I'm finally able to go through and read the whole thing again I'll find find examples of the the bleeding through the membrane and it it was going it was going both ways so the the uh, small town american character would would wind up thinking something that the hyper sophisticated british character in a completely different time frame, would have thought, but she would. She really wouldn't. She wouldn't think in the same language that he would. He would think in. Well, now that you bring that up, there are two things you brought up, and I want to follow up on them both. But let's talk about the ace double effect. Here's a book where it's like the ace doubles. You get two, two, two novels in one, two different futures. I'd like you to talk about getting back to the future in a sense because you've been writing about um, more recently about the present as if it were the future and it is indeed our future. Mm-hmm. I'm highly disappointed. When I saw Blade Runner back in 1982, I was hoping 2014, which is when it was set, would look a good deal more <laughs> like the movie than like this. Well, I I wrote initially I wrote I wrote three novels set although I was careful never to date them exactly else they date which is a, a really good strategy with science fiction but I thought they were happening about 2030 2035 and then I wrote three a different set of three connected novels, which were set about 2014 or even a bit earlier, but now those novels have are like I guess can only be read as alternate history, because like Blade Runner, it didn't go that it it didn't go that way. And then I wrote, but when I got to the end of that set, I, I had this feeling that what I think of as my yardstick of weirdness <laughs> for for the present <clears throat> had become like that was like at the end of end of the the nineties and I'd been working with that yard that same yardstick since the mid eighties 
and and I felt like that the f- All Tomorrow's Parties, the final novel in that second set. I'm not that I was I'm unsatisfied with it, but when I finished it, I I looked out the window and I thought, well, w- what's out the window is almost as weird as what's in in the book, and I, I've somehow lost my sense of. What the weirdness, what the weirdness is, and and I think that the reason I feel like I need the yardstick is that what I do depends on uh, these very rather calculated increases in in weirdness within my text that will induce in the reader that pleasurable sense of cognitive dissonance that some academics say we go to science fiction for. And I, I think there's some some truth to that that idea. So I am then em, embarked on a, a, a three book program designed to to recalibrate my yardstick of weirdness, and that began with pattern recognition, and ended with with zero history. So. At the end of Zero History, I thought, okay, I've I've just written three novels set in what I thought of as... I've written three speculative novels of the very recent past because each one was set in the year of its actual composition, although that wouldn't necessarily be evident to the reader. So I thought, okay, I've, I've... Better see what what happens when I fire up the the uh, future building machinery. All the future building machinery was, was really rusty. I, I found when I, when I went back, it was unused. And in fact, I, I it hadn't occurred to me that in the first fourteen years of the actual 21st century, I hadn't written anything set in an imaginary future. So the the peripheral is, is my first imaginary future written in the 21st century. And over the 14 years, I'd accumulated unconsciously, sort of in a hopper somewhere in the back of my head, this mountain of... of Contemporary, contemporary material. So, I just fed the mountain of contemporary material through the the groaning and complaining future building machinery, and stuff started coming. Stuff started coming out out the other end, and it looked different to me, and it was very. Un, it was quite unsettling. So it was quite unsettling. And I thought, oh, okay, I, you know, this is weird, but I, I'm going to have to work with this. This is going to become the material of of a book. I have to t- to test this to make the the yardstick project meaningful. I have to I have to fully test this, and I can only do this by writing a book with this material, which is. It became the peripheral. It's so much fun. And you mentioned Elmore Leonard, and I wanted to follow up on that because this book is, A, it's pretty darn funny. And I think and it's a very dry and sardonic sense of humor, but it runs all the way through it. It's really fun to read. And it also, I think, that the sense of crime in this novel, as it plays out in a, in a couple different ways, is really sophisticated, really entertaining. And just as we're done kind of putting together the assemblage of the first elements of the mystery of what the setting is and how you created the world, we find ourselves in the midst of some really well-conceived crime fiction. So I'd like you to talk about figuring out crimes of the future. Well, figuring, you know, figuring out crimes of the future is like figuring out crimes of the present. And it, it, I th- it's, obviously, it's, it's obviously about socioeconomics. It, it's, it's all, that's all crime is socioeconomics in 
in action. And that was really that was really all I needed. I mean, it's a very not intentionally, but as it as it worked out, I could see as it was working out. It's a, it's a it's a very socioeconomically inclined narrative, and that was another that was something else that I felt was missing from a traditionally from a lot of science fiction when I started to write science fiction, in the way that you, you, you never understand who's paying the crew of the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> and, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Where, where, where's their paycheck? Yeah. Going? And Who's you never, you don't understand, you, 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 you know, there's never any explanation for what the economic system of the, the, Earth or the federated planets they come from, like what is it? And it always seemed to me that they lived in a sort of fully realized socialist utopia. But the the show never, the show never goes there. It's like they're from a a totally benevolent version of the Soviet Union. <laughs> something, they're from something that Cuban school children are taught about in school as being where society might might one day go if we get we get our act together. So but the show certainly doesn't doesn't say that. Yeah, and no from, no Starship Fidel Castro. Yeah. From the beginning uh, of my my career I've I've wanted characters who either had had jobs because they needed the money or, or had no jobs and needed one badly because they needed they needed the money. There've never I've never written about uh, any any environment or any future imaginary future in which you don't need the money. So this isn't really that much of a departure for me, but I think it's more maybe more rigorously worked out than any imaginary economies I've I've ever created before. And there are two imaginary economies here, one of which isn't really worked out, and, and I would be hard-pressed to explain what's actually going on there. But everything you learn about it is basically that it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's op- openly and avowedly a kleptocracy. It's a, it's a government by the most, most successful thieves. And that's different from now. How? What's up front? <laughs> uh, it's it's the you know it's it's that the it's it's a validly a kleptocracy. No one that I know of, no government I know has yet proudly announced itself to be to be a kleptocracy. But I would imagine it's not actually in the book. But I would imagine that the kleptocracy in 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 this book. Came forward and said, "You know, we're here. We're we are returning. We are returning you to something that kept you safe through the Middle Ages." <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I I think too that this novel has something of the caper novel in it in the con game, and I was thinking that how well that genre of crime fiction fits in with science fiction because they both turn on what we know, how we perceive it, and how we can influence what others see us as in order to make our best gain and <clears throat> make our best play. Yeah. I, 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 I agree. When I was a, a kid, I, I was a big fan of... A, a series, a long-running series of stories and novels by Harry Harrison, and the the protagonist of these stories and novels was the stainless steel rat. Yeah, yeah, it was a guy called Slippery Jim, who was whose nickname in in the criminal underground was the stainless steel rat, and, and I'm sure that that he was a precursor of a lot of my characters but that was very novel in in its day 
and very witty because most science fiction, the protagonists in most of the science fiction I, I read weren't criminals. They weren't out, outsiders and, and were never underclass figures unless somehow the tables were about to permanently change. They, they were, were represented... They were often representatives of, of their own, own authoritarian status quo. You know, one of the things, too, that <clears throat> I thought was really interesting about this novel is that, uh, and you, you specifically point this out at one, at one point in the book, that the future is not so different from the past. In most science fiction the difference is emphasized, and there's the new this, and there's this new technology. But even in, if you think about it, a 70-year difference, which from now till 2084, would we would think, boy, it's going to be a completely different world. But if you think of from between 1944 and now, pull somebody from 1984 into 2014, and they're going to recognize cars, <clears throat> they'll recognize buildings, trains, telephones will look a little different, television's a little more advanced. I mean... It's not that big of a difference. It's, yeah, but it, it, in terms of their what they see when they step out of the time portal, and be like, okay, I get it. But thing is, they don't actually get it. Mm. They don't get all of what is most fundamentally different about it and most uncomfortable would make them most uncomfortable isn't isn't visible it would be <clears throat> they would need hit they would need to be here for a while and when they had been here for a while they would would start experiencing uh, cognitive dissonance big big time and it would be Aspects of where we where we are that uh, would make them feel very very weird, very weird indeed. Now, in in this book, we we one of the things you you do is uh, per, we have this idea of peripherals, which is a way of kind of a, a telepresence, and. I think one of the things you do that's really interesting, I'm wondering if this came out of your research, is I think you really explain what the uncanny valley is. So I'd like you to talk about what it is and how what you think causes our, that reaction. Well, there's some, <clears throat> there are people in, in robotics and, and other fields who don't, don't believe that there is the uncanny valley. The uncanny valley is is a, the idea of a, I think a Japanese ro roboticist who used that used that term to define our reaction to things that almost seem to be human but aren't quite. And and they create this uh, a feeling, an instinctive feeling of dissonance. Like we're frightened of those, we're frightened of those things. And on the far side of the valley, there w there would be uh, tech. The technology would be evolved to such an extent that that we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have that reaction at all. At that point, we would literally be unable to distinguish a robot from a human being because the robot is so much like a human being in, in every way. So I wanted to... Well, I needed, for the purposes of, of the story and for the purposes of the logic of this imaginary technology... I'm presenting. Uh, I I needed to be able to describe the far side of the uncanny the uncanny valley, which in my story are what are essentially drones. They might be the the 
in a way, the end of drone, one end of the evolution of drones as we we use them today. So instead of having a little airplane that you can fly in Afghanistan from your warehouse in Las Vegas, you you have an artificial but largely biological human body which isn't your own and which you bought from the factory that made it as a full-grown adult. And you keep it, say, in Paris while you live in San Francisco. And you, you, it gives you a kind of virtual... It gives you the option of a kind of virtual bilocation. You can, you can toggle between being physically in San Francisco and physically in Paris. And when you're in Paris plugged in to your peripheral, you you can see and feel and uh, maybe taste and smell, although for some reason in the book that's more expensive, everything in everything in, in Paris. And when you when you unhook yourself, if you've stayed there long enough, you experience jet lag. When you're back in your you're back in your you're back in your real body. And well, at one point <clears throat> you say that they recognize whether one of these peripherals is being used uh, by the micro expressions on the face. Well, yeah, that, it's actually sort of when it's one of one of the yeah, and and that to me that's kind of that's what I was getting at with the uncanny valley. That's what the uncanny <clears throat> valley is. The those. Because I was watching a a cartoon, yeah, where they had a digital thing, and the face was entirely smooth. And I realized, yeah, that's it. It's there's not that twitchiness. Well, it can even be. It could be like very, very high resolution and very, very detailed. But if the the micro expressions, which we cannot consciously register, are aren't there, we or the theory is we we become uneasy because we have grown up unconsciously knowing how to monitor micro expressions it's part of it and you know it's not just the problem i'm sure primates have it have it too and when it's not there you know you're talking to something that's not really a human being but looks like one and it it creeps you out you talked about uh, recalibrating your weird meter, and I think one of the your favorite tools for this is the Forte and Times, the the world's greatest magazine. Yes, <laughs> and you <clears throat> make a couple nods to that in this book with, of course, the thylacine. <laughs> I was yes. very happy to see a thylacine show up in this book. Well, it's a sort of a thylacine. They've, they've made it out of a Tasmanian devil, which is a, <laughs> a close, close genetic relative of of the thi- of the thylacine. And yeah, Forte and Times. I've been a Forte and Times reader. Oh, probably longer than I've been publishing science fiction, and I don't think I've I've ever missed. Ever missed an issue, and, and there's no better way to to uh, keep up with the weird. Well, what I like about that magazine, I think, is that it pre it presents everything that people say without trying to make a judgment as to whether or not there's a reality behind that phenomenon. It's just that. This is what people are saying they've seen, and yeah, that in yeah. and of itself is definitely weird. Yeah, it's definitely weird. They they will come down uh, editorially over over a considerable period of time on one side or another of uh, a hypothesis of what's what's going on. Like they've you know a, de- a decade ago, at least they they began to say that the extraterrestrial hypothesis of unidentified flying objects was a purely cultural psychological phenomenon with with 
no extraterrestrial basis. So they, they've got opinions that way. Although they'll very happily tell you what somebody who's like flagrantly of the, the opposite disposition is saying, particularly if it's amusing. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the the virtues of that publication is it's it's just fun to read, and I think some of that sense of the weird really ripples through this book in in an effective manner, and so I and this brings me to research, because when you're writing science fiction and you talked about accumulating a bunch of material, mm-hmm. you certainly have to do some research. You want you need to know what kind of is on the edge of science. But I think it can be defeating to know too much because then you're all of a sudden putting a, a date stamp on things. Do well, you have to like limit your research or I don't do I I don't do ever much in the way of formal research at all. I go to I've always gone to aggregators of novelty, purpose-built aggregators of, of, of novelty, which in the old days used to be magazines. And I used to, prior to the Internet, I, I, when I was, prior to the Internet, but after I had started writing for a living, I, I had a, a very, very high monthly magazine bill. I had to spend a lot of money to get get foreign magazines for the most part. And magazines are a platform for the aggregation and dissemination of novelty. That's what we mostly go to magazines for. They show you new things and they tell you things you haven't you haven't heard before. And if you wanted to, in the old days, if you wanted to up the ante on that, you had to get like French magazines and Japanese magazines and and just kind of look at, if you were me, just look at the pictures, but just get a sense of what was going on in the world. And But for a couple of hundred dollars a month, you could only get a, a homeopathic trickle, comparatively, of what you can now get a full-on fire hose gush of every day on on the internet so i i just my research process is absolutely indistinguishable from watching somebody slack off on the internet <laughs> do you write stuff down or bookmark stuff or no i don't i don't write stuff down and i'm Marinate. Um, I, I, well, if it, if I retain it, if it was sufficiently sticky to remain in the buffer, it's probably pretty good. If I, <laughs> if I see it and forget it, it's not sticky and it's not pretty good. And sometimes something will slip off, but Google. I've got this this incredible prosthetic superhuman free memory now that will go and find the thing that I glimpsed and then foolishly threw away, uh, which is like crazy, kind of crazy prosthetic augmentation that we all potentially have now. Every human potentially has that. Nothing like that was available to any previous generation. It's extraordinarily powerful, that sort of technology, but but it's so much who we are now that we, we don't even think about it. You know, talking about who, thinking about who we are, at one point you write that, uh, I, I think this is uh, Wilf thinking that history had its fascinations but could be Burdensome, too much of it, and you became ash obsessed with a catalog of vanished species, addicted to nostalgia for things you've never known. And I think that that's an interesting perception from somebody who, you know, because science fiction is just an inversion of history. Yeah, and history, history is itself as speculative a discipline as as any other. Al, well, the well, I don't know. 
you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but one thing I'm really sure is going to happen in the future is that the future's view of our past, going back as far as you want to go back, is going to be very different than ours. They're going to know a lot more, a lot more about it. I mean, if somebody came out of that time machine from 1945 now, and I was guiding them around, I'd say, hey, this is going to make you laugh. Did you know dinosaurs had feathers? <laughs> like, and they didn't know, right? I mean, that, it's that big a change. Like, dinosaurs had feathers. Okay, get used to it. And we take the emergent technology. Like, I'm... I don't know much about it, but I vaguely know that all around North America, in the tidal zones off the beach, there is a revolution in the history of humanity on this continent uh, underway because the, the, the technology for doing underwater archaeology has gone by gone by leaps and bounds, and a lot of the early stuff has been under underwater forever, and now we're we're gonna find out like these com- all kinds of we're getting they're they're getting all kinds of data and artifacts, and it's just going to change everything about how we view how we view the human archaeology in in North America. The Clovis limit has collapsed. There used to be this sort of artificial wall in American archaeology that, well, nothing before this. That's all gone now. Uh, so the past is the past is is changing. And really, it's because it's always changing. Uh, it's fair to say that history is speculative. Well, that's a great insight. I'm always just wondering what the future will make of the carefully wrapped and preserved dog poop in <laughs> my garbage cans at the beach. There's just the way they really revered those pets, didn't they? <laughs> Ritual objects. Ritual objects. <laughs> you know, uh, at one point, um, the I think it's Wolf, uh, or no, Venice uh, 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 describes the uh, something as cheesy. She mm-hmm. she's in one of the virtual things, and she sees them, and she thinks it's cheesy. And I thought, you know, that is so great because the future is always supposed to be so shiny and perfect, and yet the one actual element of human life that never goes away is cheese. Yeah. And I think that's something that you capture all you've always captured that in your your writing, I well, think. Well, I've I it's always been my instinct or Im, impulse to to deflate the 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 grandiosity of the capital F future and that grandiosity may it's probably cultural and it's probably kind of time limited and I think we may we may be out of it and one of the things that makes me think we may have emerged from that grandiosity somewhat is that if you could do a, a study of the frequency in the 20th century of the use of the phrase the 21st century, I think you'd see that it, it was hugely it, hugely popular in its, its usage, and it came in very early in the century. It's like, Buck Rogers in the 21st century. Like those were, you know, the, the phrase was there. It was like it glimmered. It was sort of over the hill. And much of my life, I sort of never expected to live long enough to be there because you had to be, I would have had to be like over 50. How could that happen? And 
So we had we had that. We don't have that now. When was the last time you you heard you heard someone say the twenty second century? It doesn't even exist as a buzzword. Like and. It probably won't until we're almost there. That suggests to me that we've we've acquired some degree of cultural maturity about the future. You know, um, as I was saying earlier, I think this novel is really pretty funny. And I'm wondering, first, were you laughing as you wrote parts of this? or in just kind of enjoying this kind of sardonic, low-key humor that I think makes this novel so much fun to read. And also, I'd like to talk about being funny in the novel, but also the use of the word funny in the novel, which is rather different from what we think of as funny. Or... Well, the way people, in one of the one of the uh, worlds, as we say in science fiction, funny is uh, criminal slang or popular it's colloquial slang for counterfeit so you know jeans that you know jeans that say they're from Ralph Lauren but are actually from Vietnam are funny jeans and people have 3D printers and they make a lot of funny funny stuff to sell to sell to make sell to make a living but the the he books humor i don't know it it's um i think it's more pronounced than it, some of your other works if i'm not mistaken but well there's always been uh, that element has always been there but i restrained it I restrained it in in my early work. I, I kind of it's not that I cranked it down, but I kind of kept it toward the toward the back of the stage. And I would always be a little disappointed when I'd meet someone who'd really loved, say, Neuromancer, and I'd realize that they had no sense of it being in anyway a comical text and and that's but that had always been there for me when i wrote virtual light i pretty deliberately began to allow that to be closer to the closer to the front of of the stage and so there are those are Different books. It's it's really a different kind of different kind of fiction. There's almost a slapstick element to. It's so it's sort of like slapstick Blade Runner, <laughs> uh, uh, but not enough not enough to scare the horses, and I saw, and then I with the big end books, they they are. They're, not that they're not serious, but there are ways in which they're they're sometimes uh, openly openly comic. Like it, comic doesn't at all necessarily m- indicate a lack of seriousness. You can you can be very funny and absolutely deadly deadly serious. Well, that's a, you know, a Mark Twain. You know all. I think all humor is born of pain. And mm-hmm. uh, at one point, there's uh, one of your characters says, "All this is like a movie to me." And, yeah, and I think that that's an interesting sensibility. That for us, life has become less lifelike. Yeah, well, it's it's that's uh, sort of takes us takes us back to the situationists, those weird but apparently very seminal French uh, dissident dissident philosophers who who talked about the spectacle the in with a capital S. The enemy was the spectacle. The spectacle produced all of this illusory 
capitalist world we we live in or so they or so they they saw it i've been speaking with william gibson his new novel is the peripheral thank you for joining me william thank you You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.